Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, friends. I'm very pleased to welcome back an old friend and colleague, Holly Holman, as general counsel of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. And we're going to talk about tax dollars for churches. Holly, welcome back. Thank you, Alan. It's good to be with you. Now, you correct me if I'm wrong, um, but for two centuries since the founding of uh, the nation, the default legal rule has always been tax dollars don't flow directly to churches. That is correct. <laughs> That's the general rule. Have there been any, uh, I mean, the vouchers which came in just in the last, you know, in, in our lifetime, in the last decade or so, that's kind of a, a workaround for religious schools, right? Sure. So the, the no funding of churches rule is really, um, it's really something that reflects our history and that supports the idea that there is still really broad agreement on, and that is that in America and under our constitutional system, the government doesn't fund religion. You know, our churches are funded by the people who go to them, um, and that they hold it really that religion isn't a, a set apart, set apart in the Constitution. And part of recognizing that is that the government doesn't fund churches. And of right. course, of course, there's an important history about why uh, the rule is often stated that way. Well, and I think, you know, today so many Christians have been falsely taught that the separation of church and state is somehow hostile to religious freedom. But in fact, Protestant America is the one that adopted the separation of church and state. It has always been your Baptist. Uh, you know, the Baptists were the early champions. We Seventh-day Adventists uh, kind of, we came by it naturally from you Baptists. And I've, I've often said we stand on your shoulders when it comes to advocating for separation of church and state. But this is kind of the most basic part of it, isn't it? That uh, you know, tax dollars are used for government secular purposes, and, and religion is funded uh, voluntarily by its own adherents. That's right. That's, that's a good statement of the basic premise of the relationship between church and state, whether you use the term separation or not, and that term seems to come in and out of style. It's, you know, affirmed by the courts at times, and other times it's, it, it's uh, you know, as you said, uh, demeaned in public discourse as meaning something else. But but if we look historically and if we think about the religious liberty that we enjoy, there is certainly some level of institutional separation between religion and government that has worked and has been central to our religious liberty tradition. So I'm setting us up for a discussion now of the latest development, which is the uh, current administration's decision to extend FEMA funding uh, for churches that were destroyed in uh, some of our recent disasters. Um, first of all, can you tell us, update us on what the change of the policy actually is? Well, I think the change in policy sort of broadly described would uh, is changing um, rules to open up the opportunity for buildings that are devoted to religious purposes to be eligible for FEMA grants. Now, 
the FEMA rules and regs are, are more extensive and have a lot more policy considerations in them than I can sure. fully understand and, and be expert on. But as I think we can see, obviously the government has to make choices when it provides money for disaster relief and services. And when it comes to actually rebuilding buildings, there's going to be certain priorities, right? We don't have government money just to come in and start over and do everything. And we have private insurance right. and other ways of doing that. My understanding that FEMA does not give the pay the entire cost of rebuilding like houses or, or office buildings that are destroyed. They'll give a grant, but not they don't pay the entire cost by a long shot. Right. That That makes sense. And so the change in the rule was to, I guess, expand the pool of applicants that might apply for some of that limited funding to include entities and buildings that are devoted to religious purposes. Um, before they have been excluded, along with a range of other exclusions too, as you mentioned, Alan, just because there's limited funding and limited uh, role of FEMA, but groups that could be that are dedicated even to I don't know athletic um, endeavors or politics. There's a, you know a list of different kinds of entities that are not um, eligible for funding, and buildings dedicated to religious use had been among those. And this change is to take that out so that it invites buildings that are dedicated to religious use to be eligible for these grants to rebuild them. So let me start from the perspective of a church member sitting in the pews, you know, being asked to give tithes or offerings weekly, knowing, you know, seeing the church budget figures and knowing that, you know, congregations often do struggle to just meet their basic obligations. And so when a disaster strikes, obviously there are many expenses associated with trying to put the church back together from this, you know, I, I, I guess churches, different denominations are going to be divided on this issue, but why isn't private insurance sufficient to uh, provide for these damages? Why do churches need FEMA money? I think that's a, a good question. I think that churches should, of course, begin with their sources of private funding and private insurance. And this attempt to have access to more government funding, um, I think, uh, misunderstands the relationship between church and state. It perhaps takes advantage of a very sad and sympathetic condition, which is, uh, you know, the extreme need and the difficulty in rebuilding. So I think that those church members that want to just have more pools of money or want the opportunity to receive more money, um, you know, they are doing, they are often doing that without regard to a fuller understanding about the relationship between church and state. So problematically, I mean, this certainly represents a historic shift because we've never really done this before, just offered tax dollars directly for houses of worship. Um, is it likely to be challenged in the courts? And if so, um, how likely is it to, um, to pass muster? Well, I think it is constitutionally problematic. And while I'm sure that um, many people are looking at this issue, groups that are dedicated to religious liberty, groups that are dedicated to good government and accountability for government resources, 
I don't know if there will be lawsuits or not. You know, when you decide to challenge something, a lot of considerations um, will go into that decision. What I can say is that the idea that this would be an easy case constitutionally is uh, mistaken. A lot of the rhetoric around this change has been in saying that the court would, that the Establishment Clause and the First Amendment, as we know, supporting religious freedom for all, that um, underscores this rule of no aid to, no direct aid to churches, um, while the court has, through the years, the court has allowed different kinds of funding to religious institutions. It's always been mindful about not supporting directly religious activity, right? So that in voucher cases and social service cases, the court is always looking to um, those activities of religious institutions that are similar, that are, that are secular in nature and similar to government services and other services. But this, when you're talking about rebuilding churches, that is a, a frontal assault, I believe, on the idea that government does not support religion directly, does not advance religion. And, of course, any change to that rule would also raise the specter of government supporting one religion over the other as it picks which churches will be funded. Well, yeah, that's in- inevitably um, there are there's discretion to be exercised and, and not everybody's equal. So, yeah, there's potential for for favored treatment. Um, let's take a step back and kind of, again, put this in context, because people ask me, um, well, you know, isn't the current administration favorable to religious liberty? What sorts of changes do you expect? And I think there's a, a perception among Christians that this administration is is much more sympathetic to um, religious freedom interests. And uh, my perception is it may be friendly to conservative Christian religious interests, but that's not the same thing as being supportive of religious freedom. Uh, can you give me your perspective on that? Alan, I think that was a very fair and clear statement, and it shows the challenge that we have as the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, that Adventist and Baptist and Methodist and Muslims and people across a religious spectrum have in articulating a clear vision of religious liberty in the current political context. You know, religious liberty is for all, and it has these, it's been supported by these deep principles that are not that well understood in the current political context. So you're absolutely right that um, advances or, I guess, even comments or the way of talking about religion that is pleasing to a particular religious group does not in any way indicate support for religious liberty in the American tradition. Well, and, you know, when I, when I try to talk about separation of church and state, um, I try to remind people that however much they may feel like they're part of a majority here in the United States, we're all part of a minority somewhere. And these principles are principles that we need to, you know, advocate for universally, uh, for religious freedom for everybody everywhere, not just uh, for those who believe like we do. That's true. And can you imagine... um those in the pews who are saying, maybe we could get a little bit of that government money to help repair our church, thinking about that money being for a church that is across town with whom they have deep theological difference. I, I really don't think many people are thinking about that and how 
the self-funding of religion and churches helps us keep the peace and live as citizens together um, in uh, united by uh, civic values and a community, um, but not torn apart by our differences in religion because the government's not funding them. That those are um, those differences are funded and supported out of um, your own uh, religious leanings, and uh, and there's this common respect for each other to stay out of each other's. Um, you need know, no, support. You make a good point. There's a lot of uh, antipathy, uh, hostility here in this country towards, you know, towards Muslims. So if uh, if FEMA is going to give money to rebuild the the church, Baptist church, evangelical church, you know, whatever, uh, then the Muslim mosque is also likely to be eligible. Uh, along with the Buddhist temple and, you know, various other religions that uh, people might say, well, I didn't want my tax dollars going for that. Um, And, of course, it was the early Baptists who didn't even want to be taxed to support their own church. (laughs) That's right. Took that principled stand, and and we sure appreciate it. Well, uh, we've been talking about uh, policy change, FEMA money, uh, being available for Houses of Worship. My guest today, Holly Holman, my good friend and colleague, General Counsel with the Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Liberty, uh, for Religious Liberty. Holly, blessings to you on your work. Thanks, as always, for taking time out and being with us on Freedom's Ring. Thank you so much, and thanks to your listeners for their thoughtful consideration of these tough issues. And uh, as always, we encourage our listeners here on Freedom's Ring, be informed, get involved. You can check us out on Facebook. Check out our Facebook page, my personal page, Alan Reinach. We're launching a Matters of Conscience Facebook and social media effort. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring. <laughs>